0: Chapter 2 is where we'll begin this morning. Acts chapter 2. Well, as we come into this next text here in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, we see there is a good bit of confusion regarding what has taken place. So for review, I'd like to look at verses 12 and 13 before we move on to the next text of Scripture here. Verse 12 says, They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What could this be? But some sneered and said, They're full of new wine. So in Peter's message, he sets out to clear up the confusion of what these folks are not understanding. So for just a moment, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Holy Father, God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. And once again, Lord, to... To continue in our worship Lord as we've sung to you Lord we've sung about you Lord we know that you're a great and awesome powerful God Lord I pray that you'd help us Lord as we continue to worship now with the word and Lord that we would take what is said that we might learn those things that we need to learn that we would apply those things that we need to apply be reminded of those things that maybe we have once heard Lord, that we may become more like you and more aware of what your word has for us. So I ask, God, that you would speak to our hearts this morning, um, with each and every one of us, Lord, and I do pray this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we pray often, would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed, bring conviction where conviction is needed. And, Lord, if there be one here today, Lord, that does not know you as their Savior, might today be the day of salvation for them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a simple recap of what just took place at Pentecost is found in chapter 2 beginning verse 1 Says when the day of Pentecost had arrived They were all together in one place and we found out from the previous Chapter there in chapter 1 there's probably approximately 120 or more people that are gathered together They were told there to wait until the Holy Spirit would come and then we see in chapter 2 verse 2 that suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying, and tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And we said throughout the whole Old Testament there are numerous places where the fire represented the presence of God, and so we know that God's present was coming. God's presence had come upon them. And then verse four, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and uh, began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them the ability for speech. And then verse five, who was present? There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. So there's this confusion that is taking place. I mean, there's speaking going out, and yet everybody's, and as we see later, some 15 different language groups who are understanding the message in their own native tongue. And... Uh, Verse 7 says, And they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? So it goes on and lists those groups. And verse uh, 12, They were all astounded and perplexed. So there's this great confusion that has taken place. And here's a question that came to my mind. So what was the subject of the message that was being spoken about? What was so important that God allowed some 15 or 16 different language groups to hear the message in their own native tongue? I mean, what was it that was so important? What was it that just had to get out that God allowed so many people to hear in their own native tongue? And I think we see the answer to that in verse 11. It says, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking, what? The magnificent acts of God. The magnificent acts of God. Now that is something we're talking about, amen? As you think about this, the message that God wanted them to hear was so important was about Himself. The magnificent acts of God. And as you think about this, what is the magnificent act that God has done in your life? I just want you to think about that for a moment, because he's going to end and recap with this subject and this, this question at hand. Do you know Jesus Christ? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've experienced a magnificent act of God in your life. You have that. You've uh, had something that, that the world needs, and you've got it, and we should rejoice in that. And every time God answers prayer, and every time God does something, we ought to be rejoicing and, and, excla- and, and pro- proclaiming the magnificent act of God in our life. This obviously was so important that he allowed so many people groups to understand this in their own native tongue. That's something we're talking about. So what is the significance of Peter's message? And we find that as we begin, going to verse 14. But Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them. He stood up and raised his voice. He wanted them to know the truth. That's just that one liner stood out to me this week as I think about this. All week long I've come back to reading this this passage over and over every day. And the thing that has stood out to me over and over is that he stood up, because, and raised his voice because he wanted them to know the truth. What is it that we want people to know in our life? They want. Do you want people to know that you're a relatively good person, you hadn't killed anyone, haven't stolen. You're not a thief. You're kind of just living life, kind of doing your own thing. You're a good person, morally speaking. Is that what you want people to know? In the end, that doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, we talk about the Vikings, or the Colts, or the Broncos, or the Steelers. I mean, do we want people to know that we're great fanatical fans about all those things? I mean, is that really what's going to matter in the end? Or that really, you know, Chevy's better than Ford? Or, you know, what is it that we want people to know that we would be willing to stand up and proclaim the truth about? And let me just say this morning, I'm preaching to myself here. Because we all can get so busy and so wrapped up in our own little worlds that we don't stand up and proclaim anything about You know that which is important But he stood up and raised his voice because he wanted them to know the truth He raised his voice and this is an interesting phrase in the Greek language. It's the same phrase uh, found in verse 2 when he began to speak as the spirit gave them the ability to speak look back at verse 2 I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1. Uh, actually, let me see which verse I want to look at. In verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, says, Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came in from heaven and filled the whole house where they're staying, and tongues like flames of fire were divided and rested on each one of them, and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them the ability to speak. It was the same word there, that phraseology there. It says this is the message that the Holy Spirit wanted to get out. Same phrase, same word. Because it was that important. Um, it's the same Greek usage found in Acts chapter 26, verse 25, when Paul gave a defense of the gospel before King Agrippa. It's the same phrase. He says, as the Spirit gave them the utterance, as the Spirit filled their mind, they began to proclaim the truth of the gospel. See, none of this was their own phrases. None of this was their own words. None of this was their own ideas, opinions, or whatever. It was the message of the gospel that that needed to get out. And secondly, not only did he stand up and raise his voice because he wanted them to know the truth, he stood up in agreement with the eleven. They were all eyewitnesses of the Christ's resurrection. In other words, they had a message to share because of what they had experienced, what they had seen. The message had to go out. And they stood up with the 11 in agreement because we are all witnesses of this experience. But here's the deal. What was the reaction of the listeners? We find this first one in verse, chapter 2, verse 12. It says, They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What could this be? So in other words, first of all, some scrutinized. What could this be? There was scrutiny over what had just taken place. They don't know, they're not really ready to accept it yet. They're not really sure what to, what to make of the whole scenario, but they scrutinized it. What, what what could this be? And verse 13 says, But some sneered and said they're full of new wine. Well they sneered, Well, they're full of wine, and, and you know, here's the idea. Well, they're all drunk, but you notice the time frame is that it's about nine o'clock in the morning. It's too early to have been drinking all morning, too early to have gotten drunk. No, it's not the fact that they were drinking. It wasn't new wine. But they sneered. What could this be? And later you'll find that some sought repentance. And you find that down in uh, chapter 2, verses 37 and 38 that we'll get to later. But it says, When they heard this, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? Repent, Peter said to them. And be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So some scrutinized, some sneered, and some sought repentance. And no doubt many people respond in the same ways today. Some people are going to be scrutinizing your life. You claim one thing, but what does your life say? That's cause for scrutiny, is it not? Because there are a lot of people in this world that we live in claim the name of Christ. There are a lot of people who say, Well, I'm a Christian. We've seen that in the news quite a bit lately, haven't we not? Trump claiming to be a Christian? Come on. I mean, there's all kinds of people who claim to know Jesus Christ. But what does the life say? And there are some people who are going to sneer at it. They're going to make fun of you because of your stance, because of your convictions, because of your beliefs, because of how you live your life based on what you believe. They're going to sneer. They're going to make fun of it. But you have to know also that some will seek repentance based off what they know and understand and how God works in their life to draw them to Himself. People respond the same way today. But I think there needs to be some clarification here. And Peter begins to clarify even further. Look down at verse 17. Actually, verse uh, 16 says, On the contrary, this is what was spoken through prophet, the prophet Joel. He said, This is not the fact that they're drunk. It's not new wine. Let me explain to you what it is. Men of Judah, residents of Jerusalem, he says, verse 11. Or verse 14, excuse me. says, so And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams, and I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and remarkable day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What we see here is that Peter is communicating to them that what they are seeing is not a drunken party nor a bunch of crazy people. This is exactly what the prophet Joel had spoken about, what he had prophesied about. In fact, if you take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Joel, you'll see almost a word-for-word prophecy of what what uh, Peter is talking about here. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, this is talking about the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. He says, after this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awe-inspiring day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved and there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and Jerusalem as the Lord promised among the survivors the Lord calls. So this is a uh, as, as, as the Holy Spirit was working and, and, and dwelling them and coming upon them, and the work was going forth and the message was going forth, what was taking place? Well, uh, I believe the point that, uh, that Joel was trying to make is that it should not be surprising that the Holy Spirit was going to come. And when he does, incredible things will take place. And let me just stop there just for a moment. It has been a while... For probably most of us, since we have seen an act and a movement of the Holy Spirit in our country. Would you agree? We need to see this again. Politics is not going to save our country. You know that, right? Politics, it doesn't matter who's going to get in office. It doesn't really matter in the big picture. That's not going to save our country. Whether or not we help out the poor and raise their income level and put them in a different status is not going to change the outcome in our country. Giving everybody health insurance is not going to change our country. Taxing the rich is not going to save our country. Nothing around us is going to change our country when it's filled full of fallen humans who are sin-filled and selfish. What's going to change our country is the Holy Spirit bringing conviction on the hearts of man and calling them to, to repentance. That's what's going to change our country. But he says when the Holy Spirit would come, several things would take place. Number one, the Spirit would be poured out on humanity. We need that pouring out again. We need the Holy Spirit to be working and active in our hearts and our lives. Would you agree? We need that. But when's the last time we've asked for that? When's the last time we've expected God to do something? When's the last time that we got on our knees before God and said, God, you need to show up here in this circumstance and draw your people to yourself and call people to repentance? Remember what 2 Chronicles 7.14 says? If my people who are called by my name will what? Humble themselves. But where does that start? It starts in praying with God. Spending time in, with, in prayer with God. And let me just say this. And I'm preaching to the choir here. How often do we really take time to pray? Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Do we spend time in prayer as we ought? Do we spend time on our knees before God, whether in the morning or throughout the day or at the evening before we go to bed? Do we spend time in prayer? I don't think we do as a country, as a church even. I think we're so busy in the world that we live in that we don't take time to do it as we ought. And I'm not talking about... 30 minutes a day or 45 minutes a day or 10 minutes a day. I'm talking about having an attitude of prayer that throughout the day we are communicating with God and asking God for His Holy Spirit to work in our lives and not just to change our country, but start with me. He says when the Spirit would come, it would be poured out on humanity. Second thing, he said sons and daughters and slaves would prophesy. And we find out in Acts chapter 2 that when they did, they were talking about the magnificent acts of God. And they said dreams, visions, and wonders would take place. And there's all kinds of speculation of what that could mean, what that could portray. But let me give you a couple examples of visions and where I think God was worked through them. Let me, let me have you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 10 just for a moment. I'm not going to read the entire passage, but I want to give you an example. In Acts chapter 10, beginning of verse 9, you might see in the heading of that text of Scripture, Peter's vision. Says the next day as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the housetop about noon. Then he became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he went into a visionary state. He saw heaven open and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all four footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. And then the voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything. Common and richly unclean. And he goes on again a second time, and a voice has said to him, What God has made clean, you must not call common. And this happened three times, and then the object was taken up into heaven. So we talk about this idea that God used the vision in his life to get his attention, to direct him to a form of action. We see this again in Acts chapter 16. Probably another, probably a little bit more familiar passage in Acts chapter 16. Verse 9 says, During the night, a vision appeared to Paul. A Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, he immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to evangelize them. So once again, God allows a vision to be seen to direct his actions. And then again in chapter 18, uh, verse 9, I believe it is, Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. And he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So, once again, God allowed a vision. So, what was the purpose of these visions, these signs, these wonders that God gave the ability to be seen? I believe that oftentimes God uses these circumstances, these visions, these wonders, these signs to direct His people or to make His message known. It wasn't for their own personal gratification. It wasn't so that everybody could say, hey, look at him. He's got this great thing going on in His life. It was for God to use, or God revealing His direction, His will for them through these various signs, wonders, visions. But not only that, we look back in our text in Acts chapter 2. And if you would, look at verse 21. He said three things would take place. He said the Spirit would be poured out on humanity. Secondly, sons, daughters, and slaves would prophesy. Third, he said dreams, visions, and wonders would take place. And then number four is in verse 21. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh would be saved. It's an amazing thing when the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. Things change. Things begin to happen for God's glory. We see at Pentecost that God began to do an incredible work and and, uh, Pastor Lloyd talked about that last week just a little bit. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says those who accepted his message were baptized in that day. About 3,000 people were added to them. When God through the Holy Spirit, works in lives, things happen. And he says one of the, the last things that would happen is that everyone who called on the name of Yahweh would be saved. What a blessed promise. It was prophesied in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, that anyone who would call on his name would be saved. Then he, in his message, clarified what the Holy Spirit was doing through the confusion and through the chaos, and said again that anyone who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. I love that. Because there's hope for us. There's hope. So the question I want to leave you with today is, have you called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? See, it's one thing to show up here each and every week. I I don't know who said it. I don't know who first coined the term, but someone once said that 70% of most church members do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, well, how can someone make a statement like that? How can that even be close to be or remotely true? I think the statement's made based on actions. And maybe you would agree, maybe you would disagree. But if we truly know Jesus Christ as our Savior, things should be different, right? Would you agree? I mean, our actions are different. Our reactions are different. Our goals are different. Everything that we do in life should be different than the unsaved world. Would you agree? So when the Church of God was formed god gave them a vision of what it should be and he sent out his people to share the gospel and change the world one life at a time why doesn't that take place very often why is it that churches across america are growing but they're not growing because people are getting saved they're growing because this church is struggling and this church is struggling hey let's join together that's happening all over america or this church is dying we're going to change the name and make it this church and this church is going to join in with us and now we're bigger than we used to be but we're still the same group of people. Just from here and here and now we're here. Why is it that churches across America are not seeing people saved? Why is it that we don't see people falling under the conviction of the Holy Spirit like once took place? Could it be that we're not asking God through the Holy Spirit to work in our lives? Or Could it be that Maybe whoever the infamous he is that said 70% of church members aren't saved, maybe he was right because our lives don't bear out the fact that we're living for the Lord with our obedience. I don't know. But it ought to cause us to think, am I walking as a child of God should walk? See, we're really good at not performing the sins of commission, if I could say it that way. We're not really guilty of committing certain sins, right? I mean, we haven't killed anybody. At least, I don't think anybody have killed anybody lately. You haven't stolen from each other. You haven't—you're not out there telling habitual lies to one another. You're not really, you know, like just living and you know, committing habitual sins. But what about the sins of omission—not commission, but omission? What things should be in your life that you've, omit, that, that you've omitted? Like Bible study, prayer. I mean, because we all know that only, only those who are called of God to preach are supposed to be studying the Bible, right? No, 2 Timothy 2.15. The Bereans search the scriptures daily, see if what is said is so. We're to be students of the word, rightly dividing the word of truth. Do we do that as a child of God, or have we omitted that from our life? What about that time in prayer? I'm not talking about, you know, that 10-second prayer, though I'm not minimizing that in the morning, Lord, just help me as we go about this day, or Lord, bless His food as we are about to partake. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about fellowship with God. Or have we omitted that because of the busyness of our life? I'm talking about sharing our faith, looking for opportunities from time, from, from time to time to say, hey, here's an open door. Here's a conversation that just lends itself to, to speaking the gospel, and we just, I'm, I just don't have time for that. Or I'm not sure what they're going to say. I'm not sure how they're going to respond, so I'm just not going to do that. Or have we omitted that from our life? See, we're really good at not performing the sins of commission. What about the sins of omission? What things have we omitted from our life that should be a part of it? I'd like to believe that God still wants to do a work in our lives. I want to believe that God's Spirit still is waiting for the opportunity to come in our midst and see a revival of souls being saved. A revival of His children walking in full obedience to His commands. But it does start with that relationship with God. Do you truly know Him? And He says, whoever would call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you've not done that this morning, that's where it starts. To know Jesus Christ is your Savior. To know that if you were to walk out today And if I were to get hit by a car and die and and be ushered into eternity, I know that heaven is my home. Not on the basis of, I went to church. Not on the basis of, you know, I gave to the poor or helped out those in need. Not on the basis of, hey, my parents or grandparents were religious. I'm talking about on the basis of a relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, how does that take place? Glad you asked. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? A, B, C. One of the first things that we ever teach our children. A, is to admit that you're a sinner. A, simply admit that you're a sinner. Romans 3.23 says what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that there's not a one of us in this entire room that if we're honest with ourselves, we can't say that we're without sin. We've done wrong. And we have to know that sin separates us from for from God for all eternity. So, A, admit that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have what? Everlasting life. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you? He did that for you. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's that gift. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It's freely given. And to accept that gift. Otherwise, it says the penalty of my sin is eternal separation from God. But the gift is eternal life. And then letter C is simply confess and call. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, say, well, what's the importance of calling out? Why, Why do I have to do that? Well, here's what it says in God's Word in Romans 10, verse 9. It says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. And then a recap of what he says in Acts 2, 21. He said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So A, is to admit that I'm a sinner. B, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And C, I confess that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is, and I call on him to be my Savior. So what does that do for me? If I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and, and, and I surrender myself in prayer to him, I become his child. That begins a relationship for all eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only then that you have the Holy Spirit's power working in and through you to live the life that he's called you to live. And apart from that, you cannot live the life. You cannot be good enough. You can't do enough good to those around you. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, why? Lest any man should boast. So he closes this passage here in Acts 2 with a statement. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When the Holy Spirit shows up and works, great things happen. But to me, one of the greatest things that can happen is that he can call you to be his child. When the Holy Spirit works in our life to draw us to himself, How will you respond? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for...